This is William and Lonsdale, a podcast about the legal ecosystem and the fascinating people who make it tick. Today, your host, Michael Green, speaks with Lauren Cruikshank. Lauren is relatively early into her life in the law, working as a construction lawyer at Pinsett Masons, but she has managed to pack plenty into her 30 years so far. In her teens, Lauren had two big goals, to be a teacher and to go to the Paralympics for discus, neither of which worked out. But as we'll hear, after a chance work experience placement in Year 10, Lauren found her passion and she has never looked back. So at my high school, Oberon High School, in Year 10 you went off and did a week's work experience somewhere. And I wanted to do a week's teaching somewhere. Unfortunately, there's just no openings anywhere. So the food counsellor at school said, look, there's an opening at the local law courts. Why don't you just go down there and sit there for a week? And I walked in the first day and everything changed. There was a committal hearing on for a murder, which was a bikey shooting of a... It happened in the Dillon region and I'd heard about it in the papers so I got there. Couldn't believe I was seeing on the Camille hearing of this high profile bikey tri- trial. Um, I just remember sitting there and watching these barristers cross examine this witness and I just thought, oh, I want to do that. I want to stand up there and cross-examine people and have that amazing ability and that amazing intellect to be able to do that. And from that day until this, you've never deviated off your legal path? Not for a second. I just knew. Welcome to Lies in the Law. Our guest this morning is Lauren Cruikshank, who is a construction lawyer. So Lauren, tell us about your practice. What do you do? Firstly, thank you, Michael, very much for having me here today. So as you say, I am a construction lawyer. I work for a private firm called Pinton Masons, which are located in Melbourne CBD. They're an international firm. Uh, they've been in Australia for about eight years and I've been with the firm for about a year and a half now. Okay, so you're a young construction lawyer. That, yeah. That sets the scene for us. But let's go back to the start. Sure. You were born with ataxic cerebral palsy. Yes, I was, yeah. Can you explain that to us and, and how it affects you? Sure. So... Going right back to the start, um, cerebral palsy is a condition caused by brain damage which affects muscle movement. So for me, it was caused by birth trauma. So I was born about five weeks early and quite in a quick and traumatic way. Basically, when I was born, I was very close to past um, and I need to be resuscitated. So the first question when I was born was whether I'd survive. It was touch and go for a few weeks. And after that, there was the question of what damage was caused, including most likely they said cerebral palsy. So there's about four different kinds of cerebral palsy. Um, I have ataxic cerebral palsy, which means that my coordination and balance are affected. So ataxic cerebral palsy is probably the most rare form. And one thing that's really important to know about cerebral palsy is that no two people are the same. So... I can basically, day to day, 
I use a pair of crutches to go around outside. So when I'm in, inside, such as my home or, or my office, I can get around okay, just rely on furniture and things like that. But because of my balance, I find it easier to use crutches outside. So with cerebral palsy, one of the most important things to remember are that no two people are the same. So person A may be able to do something, which person B can't, but person B may be able to do something that person A can't. For example, I find it quite difficult to get up and down steps without some kind of assistance, whether that be a rail or my crutches. Whereas another person with cerebral palsy who is affected differently may be able to do that, but may find it difficult to make a cup of tea, which I find easy. So cerebral palsy has this effect upon you. It yep. must have been difficult, particularly in your schooling. How did yep. it affect you, primary school, secondary school? Sure. So I think going back to my childhood, and I'll give you a bit of history here, my, I was raised by my father after my mother passed when I was about five years old. Uh, she had a form of blood cancer. So she was diagnosed when I was about three. And before that, the way the family always planned to work was that my mother would stay home and look after the kid and dad would work away. And literally overnight that changed. And my father, he worked for Telstra as a technician at that stage. He literally the day... Mum got a diagnosis, he came home from work and never went back and became a full-time carer to me and my older brother. So when I got to primary school, firstly, I need to delay my beginning of school. I didn't start school till I was six. The reason for that being they thought I'd need another year just to get a bit stronger physically with the cerebral palsy. Mentally, I was definitely ready to go to school at five. The alternative that, to that was to send me to a specialist school, which was not something my father wanted to do. So he made the decision to wait next year so that I could go to a mainstream school. So when I started school, school, the first few years were tough to begin with. It was fairly rare for me to make it for a full day of school. Either I'd have a fall, I'd get too tired, something would happen, Dad would have to come get me from school early. That hurts the facts of Dad not being able to go back to work because he was constantly on call to look after me. So I think going for early years of primary school, I was fairly academically average. I know when I was first diagnosed with cerebral palsy, when I was around three years old, the prognosis probably wasn't what the reality has been. So my parents were told things like, Lauren will probably never walk independently at all, will definitely never have a job and will probably really struggle at school and won't do it. So I think in the early years, it was just a mentality of just getting me through the years. It probably wasn't until year six I had... A teacher, his name was Mark Brown, he used to play for Geelong Football Club. So he was my year six teacher and he sat my father down at one of the parent-teacher interviews and said, look, yeah, Lauren's going to need some support to get through the rest of the schooling, but there's no reason she can't do that. There's no reason she can't do anything she sets him up to with the right support. So that was probably my early years academically. Also, I think in the early years, my cerebral palsy had quite an effect socially. Um, 
I think we all know kids can be mean at times. Um, and I think in primary school in particular, I had a lot of problems with bullying and being quite socially isolated. It was at the stage for quite a while that I had to be kept inside at lunchtime because it simply wasn't safe for me to be in the playground. There'd be things thrown, beaten, my walking aids would be stolen, whatever. So that was that was challenging. Um, I think that had quite an effect. I real I don't know how many times I asked my father if I could be homeschooled because I loved academic school. It was just the social stuff I struggled with, and. I think it took me a long time to realise that my life wasn't always going to be like that, that eventually people will get over it. And did they get over it when you got to high school? When I got to high school, I think people were a bit more mature about it, surprisingly. Um, I mean, I met one of my closest friends at high school I think those who sort of weren't able to accept me at the time sort of stayed away from me, which was a better thing than causing me day-to-day problems. Um, And it's only gone forth from there. Lauren, despite the disability and Mm. and the difficulty that cerebral palsy is and was for you, you competed extensively in sport and, and a variety of sports as well. How did that come about and where did it take you to? So sport was definitely a very big part of my life throughout in particular my teenage years. Uh, it started off just as a social thing, playing wheelchair basketball down in Geelong where I lived and still live today. So I just play a Tuesday night social game of wheelchair basketball with other people, both disabled and not disabled. And eventually I moved into the area I took more, a bit more seriously, which was athletics, in particular discus throwing. So anyone who's listening to this would... If they saw me, probably be a bit surprised that they, I mean, was a discus thrower. I'm quite a petite. I'm about 150 centimetres. I'm not tall by any means. But discus for me, unlike other throwing events such as shot put, has a lot to do with your technique, not just your stature or your strength. Although your strength is very important. So for our discus phone, because I have issues with my balance, I throw in a different way to an able-bodied person. I use, basically what they do is I have a frame built around me, which I stand or sit in, and I throw from that frame. So I don't spin around like the average person. It's more just a twist and throw, but that frame stops me from falling forward. Can I just, I'm trying to envision this, Yeah, line. sure. So the twist is you twist your torso. Yes. So you twist your torso if you're right or left-handed, back to the right or back to the left. Yeah. And then come forward and throw. Yes. So I did that for throughout my teenage years. I compared a few Australian national championships and the Pacific School Games, which were held in Canberra when I was about year nine. And my my career, I guess, wasn't something I looked to start straight away after I finished school. I actually wanted to go to Paralympics first. So I was sort of... A little way off the qualifiers for Paralympics, but still 
saw it as an achievable goal. I was aiming for London in 2012 and I think it was about 2010 that they announced that they weren't going to have discus for my disability at London. So to give you a bit of background, in the Paralympics, people compete against people with the same or similar disabilities to them. So when you start competing at a sort of a semi-elite level for disabled sport, you go for a medical assessment and they give you a classification and you will compete against people with that classification. Now, each classification has its own world record and things like that. That way, you know, I'm not competing against someone who's missing a leg or something because cerebral palsy affects my whole body. It's going to affect my upper body strength as well. So, as you can imagine, at the Paralympics, there's a lot of different events because there's not just one discus event, it's discus for each classification and it's simply not possible to run an event for each classification in the time frame they've got. So, unfortunately for London, the discus for my classification, which was called F33, being field events, 30 being cerebral palsy and 3 being the severity. So unfortunately that got pulled. And that was, it was hard but not devastating, I have to say. With my sport, I always enjoyed training more than competing. I found competitions quite a long day of sitting around waiting for your event. And anyone who knows me, even to today, knows I'm not good at sitting still for long. So I get bored. And so I always love training more because you could get in, do it. It's a great feeling. And being fit and healthy has a really positive effect on cerebral palsy too. The stronger and fear you are, the better you can manage it. So when it came to that event being dropped from Paralympics, yeah, I was a bit sad, but it wasn't devastating. And as we'll talk about in a minute, I was head at that point towards looking at doing law, so I had other interests as well. So let's get on to the law. Yeah. What was it which moved you, your trajectory or your vision towards becoming a lawyer? So my family, there is no lawyers in my family. Mum was a checkout ticket goals and Dad was a house painter and then went for Telstra. So law certainly wasn't on my radar as a young person. I was looking at either becoming a teacher or something in the sports science area because I love sports so much. So at my high school, Oberon High School, in New Tanya, went off and did a week's work experience somewhere. And I wanted to do a week's teaching somewhere. Unfortunately, there's just no openings anywhere. So the careers counsellor at school said, look, there's an opening at the local law courts. Why don't you just go down there and sit there for a week? And I walked in the first day of my work experience and everything changed. Lauren, can I just confirm, this is the Geelong Law Courts? Yep. And my recollection is at Geelong, the Magistrates Court, the County Court and the Supreme Court are all together in the one building? Yes. So it's technically a Magistrates Court down there Um, and then they have the County and Supreme Court rotate part of the regional rotation. They come and sit down there on an as-needs or rotation basis. Okay, so your your work experience has been arranged for you to go to the Geelong Courts yeah. and observe the law, observe yeah. trials. Yeah. Yeah. So the first the first day I actually, I feel like I got really lucky in terms of timing was there was a committal hearing on for a 
murder, which was a bikey shooting of a, it happened in the Jolong region and I'd heard about it in the papers, so I got there. Couldn't believe I was seeing on the Camille hearing of this high-profile bikey tri- trial. So that was a close court, but luckily, being the work experience kid, they let me in. Um, I just remember sitting there and watching these barristers cross-examine this witness and... I just thought, oh, I want to do that. I want to stand up there and cross the German people and have that amazing ability and that amazing intellect to be able to do that. And from that day until this, you've never deviated off... No, not off for a second. ..your legal path? Not for a second. I just knew... William and Lonsdale is brought to you by Greenslist, one of the leading multidisciplinary barristers' lists in Australia. Greenslist believe in promoting conversation around the ideas and issues that shape not only our legal system, but our wider community. So, Lauren, you're at Oberon High School in Geelong. You've gone and done work experience uh, in Year 10, seen a murder committal at the Geelong Magistrates' Court and you're heading towards your year 12. But it's different because you have got a disability which affects your ability to write. How do those things play out? I mean, are you given special consideration in your exams? Are you, can you use a laptop? How did it work out for you as you came towards year 12? I think one important thing to explain is that due to having cerebral palsy, my handwriting is slower. It's a lot like my walking. It's a bit slower than the average person. It's... A lot of people assume that my writing isn't legible and that's why I have difficulty. That's actually not the case. It just takes me a bit longer. So coming into the exam period of VCE was quite nerve-wracking. I felt like I was a bit behind the eight ball compared to what other students could do in a two-hour period. So I decided to apply for what they term alternative arrangements for them. And now this is different to special consideration. Alternative arrangements are like a preventive thing. So like giving equity to people so that they're able to perform in their exams, such as maybe a scribe or a laptop or additional time to do that then. To try to make the playing field as level as possible. Exactly, exactly. Uh This difference from special consideration where something's gone wrong in the exam and it's sort of a reactive thing to make up for what's gone wrong, whereas illness or something like that. So I applied for special arrangements and I can tell you it was no easy feat to get them through VCE. Um, I remember they wanted a letter from my diagnos- the doctor that diagnosed me. I mean, that was 15 years earlier. I remember my father being a wild goose chase for a few weeks trying to track that doctor down. Anyway, in the end, they gave me a laptop for some exams, not all. Um, For example, I had to write my mass exams just the same as everyone else, no extra time, just... Not even extra time? No, no. So um, the ironic thing about this I found was, although I wasn't entitled to what... I was seeking in terms of alternative arrangements. When I went to apply at university, I was able to write to that university for special consideration to get into uni. Which means they may adjust your marks. 
not adjust my marks as such because that's it with BCE, but the uni mates say, and it didn't turn out this way as I'll explain, but the uni mates say, okay, this girl was a couple of points below the end of school, but we'll let her in because of these other considerations. So thankfully it didn't turn out that way. I ended up getting the score I needed to get into the course I wanted. Um, so that special consideration fell away. And then really fantastically, and by contrast, when I got to uni, was as soon as I started uni, they sat me down and said, look, OK, you got cerebral palsy. What alternative arrangements can we put in place to support you doing your exams? So just take us back to year 12. Yeah. Tell us about your marks and how, not exactly how many marks did you get, <laughs> but what was it like getting the marks, finding yourself having achieved university? So I think there was two, sorry, two steps to that process. The first process was getting that to a mark, which I was like, yep, that's great, I've got the mark. I think I need to get into a course I want. And then there was the second step of that to university offers. And uh, I'll never forget this day. Um, back at that time, I each year I would attend a athletes training camp down Geelong and I was on one of these camps when the office came out and in those days the office was published in the local newspaper. So the newspaper would have each degree and the name of the person or people that go into that degree. And I remember my father went got a newspaper and brought it down to the camp for me where I was. So your dad was heavily invested, just like you were. Uh, he was. He always was. Always. Anyway, I just, I still to this day don't know why I thought this, but I thought, oh, they must have changed the end of school to get into this course. So when I apply for uni, I apply for a number of different preferences, and obviously those preferences each had a drop in into school to get into sort of a plan BCD. And I thought to myself, oh, they must have changed the end of school to get into my preferred course. So I told my dad to look up my second option. My name wasn't there. Third option, name wasn't there. Fourth option, name wasn't there. I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, I did not go into uni. I've, I've stuffed this. So I'm... I've got nothing to do this year. And then I thought, surely not. Surely I didn't get my first preference. So I got Dad to look it up and there was my name. Now, were you too nervous to look it up yourself? So you got your dad to do it? I think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think Dad burst into tears at that point. During Year 12... An organisation named DOXA came into your life. Could you tell us about DOXA, what it is, and how it came to play a role in your life? Sure. So DOXA, and DOXA isn't an acronym, it's just a word. That's usually the first thing people ask me. So, yeah, just a word. And Can I say made up by a, a man named Father Joe Jacoby? That's correct, Yes. So DOXA is an organisation based here in Melbourne which seeks to improve the lives of young people who have faced some sort of disadvantage or challenging circumstances in their lives. And those challenges or disadvantages aren't an exclusive list, it's just a case-by-case basis. And DOXA seeks to do this in a number of different ways. But the way I was involved in is through what's called the DOXA Cadetship Program. And the DOXA Cadetship Program, it takes young people, usually about year 12, who are looking to go on to university 
and have some sort of professional career. And it tries to give them a bit of a leg up doing that by teeing that person up with a sponsoring company who is in the area they're interested in. So for someone to get to the law, they'll probably be a law firm or a company that has an in-house law department. A key way Doxa does this for the cadetship program is that that sponsor company will give that cadet at least eight weeks work experience a year and it will give them a mentor within that company who will support them through that. And that doctor relationship continues throughout that person's degree. So for me, um, doctor came to me purely by chance. So I had this wonderful year 12 coordinator at high school. His name was John Dangerfield. His son, Patrick, is now the captain of the Geelong Cats. So John, or Dangers as we call him, he just came up to me in the corridor one day with this piece of paper, this pamphlet, the doctor, and said to me, oh, and look, I've been emailed this as a U-trial coordinator. I don't know if it's your cup of tea, but if you want to apply, here you go. And I looked at it and, yeah, I wasn't sure, completely sure about it. But I thought, yeah, look, why not? It's work. It could end up being work experience in the area that I ultimately want to build a career in. So I'll give it a shot. So I applied. And the first step of the doctor process, if you like, was an information session up in the Melbourne CBD here. So... I remember that day my father and I were coming up on the train from Geelong and it was about a 37-degree day. It was stinking hot December day and we are halfway here, out at Little River and the train broke down. And uh, my father... As lovely as he was, he wasn't always the most patient of men. And he was quite keen to turn around and go home. He was just saying, look, nothing's going to come of this doctor thing. It's just another program. Let's not bother. I was like, no, Dad, I think we should. I think we should go. So I got him onto the coaches and off to Melbourne and we got to the information session just as everyone was walking out. And there must have been 120 applicants there, like it was a packed room. But it actually turned out to be real lucky because I went and went up to the coordinator of DOXA to apologise for missing the session. And I got talking to them and seemed to build quite good rapport with this person and they rang me about two weeks later and said to me, Hi Lauren, we've got this sponsor company in your road who are looking for a cadet. I think talking to you would be a really good fit culturally with this organisation. So it went from there. And so you, doctor, arranged a cadetship for you with Norton Rose, a yeah. large, one of the large commercial firms. Yes, that's correct. So, so how did that play out? I mean, you said it's eight weeks a year throughout, eight weeks a year, each year of your course. But how did it work out for you? Firstly, once that phone call was made, I went in an interview with Norton Rose and they went, yep, we want this girl. And I got introduced to my mentor, for the Doctor Cadetship program, Matthew Crow, who was at that stage the head of Melbourne at Norton Road Fulbright. So I stayed working there. Originally, I think I did about a six or eight week block over summer. So I worked in with the other paralegal. And like, so I basically got put into a paralegal role and trained to be a paralegal. You're 19 years of age. 
Yes. Have had no contact with the legal world at all. No. It must have been scary. I was petrified. I was so scared. To give you a bit of an idea of how I was as a 19-year-old, I remember when I started uni, I was too scared to talk to the lecturers because they were lawyers and I'd never spoken to a lawyer before. So walking into a law firm full of them was absolutely petrifying and it, it took a while to overcome that. It probably took about a year of being there to actually feel comfortable. Your course was maybe a five-year course, I think? Yes. And so uh, over those five years, how did the relationship with Norton Rose develop? What did they? What did you do? And then how did it play out from there? So as I said, the first year I did at Norton Rose, I did two of a six-week block. And then over time, I realised my preference would probably be to work one day a week with no one knows. By that stage, my timetable at uni had sort of shifted, so I had a spare day to come into the city and work, and that allowed me to have a more ongoing involvement on the cases and projects I was working on at the time. Primarily, I worked on a big international arbitration with Matt Crow and a big team of lawyers, which sat up in Brisbane, so I got to go up to Brisbane for a week and work up there as a paralegal, which I thought And this was, would be construction, infrastructure yeah. sort of thing, if it's, yep. I assume, if it's international. Yes, so big pipeline, basically. And this went on for the whole of the, the term of your degree, the whole of the Yes, term, so of the it went on for five years. It was... Before I started my degree, I had no interest in construction law whatsoever. I thought to myself, why on earth am I going to do in construction law? I wanted to be that person I'd seen as a 16-year-old in court, that criminal defence burst of standing up across the dummy in someone. And over time that sort of shifted and I thought, oh, I actually really like construction law. So... By the end of my fourth year of uni, I was like, you know what, I don't want to leave no nose at the end of my degree. So I applied for the clerkship program. And there's probably about 800 applicants for that program. And they took on seven for a seven-week job trial, essentially. So a lot of firms do this now. They take on law students in the penultimate year for clerkship and that works as a job trial for their graduate program. So they're like articles basically. So I did that 10-week clerkship and was lucky enough to be offered a graduate position at the end of that. I suspect it had a lot more to do with your abilities than actually luck, Lauren, but uh, it's, it's nice of you to say luck, but I'm, I'm sure you wouldn't have been offered the position unless you would shown great ability to do the work. So you do, it's a grad year, but in fact it's a two-year yeah, process yeah. at Norton Rose. Mm-hmm. How did that work out? I mean, having, having had the time there as a cadet, you really are, I would have thought, a long way ahead of a typical university graduate coming into the grad program. I think that is one of the really big benefits of DOCSO is that anyone who goes through the program does have that head start compared to their peers. So in terms of the graduate years, if you like, at Norton Rose at that stage, the graduate program, as you said, went for two years. So the first year you're a graduate, so you know me as a lawyer, and then your, you do your PLT during that year and you get usually made it into that year and then you do a further two, two rotations, 12 months, in the graduate program, but you're actually a qualified solicitor for those two, layer two rotations. And in those rotations, which of the areas of law really appealed to you and which didn't appeal to you? I have a fair idea at the start of my graduate program that construction was where I wanted to be. 
Um, I think the graduate program was really good for me in cementing that well. By trying other things, I went, oh, I like this, but I like construction all better. So of my four rotations, I did employment law, insurance law, franchising, and then went back to construction. And so the first two, employment law and insurance, were both litigation-based, so they were similar in a way to the construction law in which I was litigation-based as well. And I really liked that process. I just found the construction more interesting in an area of law. And then I did franchising, which was my only real transaction-based experience, which I enjoyed, but I knew that wasn't where my career was going to be. When I think of construction law, I assume, maybe wrongly, that it is heavy on detail. Very heavy on detail. (laughs) And therefore you're a person who likes detail and is very careful and thorough with your approach to everything you do. I see myself and I've been told by those I work with that I'm quite methodical in the things I do. So construction's probably one of the most detailed areas I've practised in. So to give you a bit of background in terms of construction law, I deal with big infrastructure and commercial projects. A lot of people think when you say construction law, you're dealing with, you know, council approvals and the mum and dad house and the family home. That's not what I deal with. I deal with the big stuff like, you know, your Melbourne metros and projects of those scales. And so in construction law, I see it. There's really three main streams. And each stream represents a stage in the process of a project. So the first stream is your, like, transactional stream. So they're your lawyers who come in and draw up the contracts for the project to be built. And then you've got the second stream, which is your project delivery stream. So there's are lawyers who come in and just help Often I represent contractors, so head contractors on project, help with day-to-day legal issues, interpreting the contract, making sure things run as smoothly as possible. And then there's the third stream, which is what I specialise in. That's the dispute stream. That's where the project delivery lawyers haven't been able to keep things running smoothly and there's a litigation that's on foot or looks like it's going to be on foot. Lauren, obviously you can't tell us about specific cases, but have things changed in the construction law world because of COVID, because of the change in our whole society's attitude towards the environment? Does that play out in construction law? Yes, I think so, Michael. Anecdotally speaking, I've certainly seen a number of cases come through to do with the effects of COVID, in particular the effects of lockdowns have had in terms of delaying projects. So in terms of Construction Law 101 here, I guess, under any Construction Law contract, there will be something called a date for practical completion, which is the date that the contractor needs to finish the project by. And in the contract, there'll often be a rate called liquidated damages, which the contractor needs to pay the person they're building the project for, for each day that they're late. So often the contract will also say out terms in which the time for practical completion can be extended and therefore the contractor doesn't have to pay those liquidate images for the extended period. And they're often prescribed in quite a bit of detail in a contract. And 
Then in recent years, we've had this huge thing of COVID coming, which nobody saw coming. And there's been a big question of, okay, how do we deal with this? Who's, COVID's no one's fault, but who's, who pays for it? That's been a really big thing in the industry at the moment. Yeah, I think also the move towards renewable energy is really taking hold, in particular onshore wind and solar, and hopefully our coming years we'll see more offshore wind projects, which I'm sure will set a new range of challenging circumstances for us to deal with. Uh, one thing about the law, it's very adaptable and no matter what changes occur in society, lawyers seem to adapt and uh, make themselves needed within that area. It's what makes it interesting, Michael. <laughs> now, I want to go back to Doxa. So Doxa played a large role in your life and a very positive role in your life. Have you got an ongoing relationship with Doxa? I'm very proud to say that I do. So in about 18 months ago, I moved across to a firm called Pinsent Masons where my previous mentor, Matt Crow, now works. So I now work with him again. And together we currently have two new doctor cadets with us in the office. It's really exciting to see the next generation come through and what they're going to achieve in the future. That's fantastic. So uh, you, you were benefited by DOCSA and you had people who have helped you, such as John Dangerfield putting you into DOCSA, Matt Crow mentoring you, and so you're repaying the favour by doing the same thing for people coming through. I am, and I have to say it's one of my favourite things about my job that I get to do that. Lives in the Law is proudly sponsored by City Maps Illustrated. Their recent publication, The Melbourne Map, is a celebration of our wonderful city. This stunning, hand-drawn illustration, which took more than three years to create, is available as an art print, jigsaw puzzle and calendar. The perfect acquisition for your home, office or corporate gifting. Lauren, you're a Geelong girl and you work in Melbourne, Collins Street. In fact, you're not even in Geelong now. You live 20 minutes past Geelong on the way to Torquay. That commute doesn't sound much fun to me. You get, I say this to everyone, Michael, you get used to it. It's worth it to have that lifestyle by the beach, I have to say. Um, But, yeah, in terms of the commute, it's, I see it, it's a really good break between the office and home. Um, in the morning, I must say, it's a chance for an extra nap. And on the way home, I have a chance to do a bit of work on the way home. And it's probably a great thing that people often think I've already knocked off when I'm on the train. So I get to do a bit of work uninterrupted and really have that focus period during that time. Looking back, Lauren, over what is a short career in the law so far, (laughs) but hopefully it'll be very long, there have been critical people who have played a role, such as Mark Brown when you were in Year 6, John Dangerfield, Year 12, Matt Crow, etc. And it seems like you took advantage of circumstances as they arose. Am I right in thinking you've taken advantage of these um, circumstances and and, uh, potentially beneficial circumstances that occurred or have you had a, a plan in your mind? And looking forward, have you got a plan or you just roll with things and hopefully take advantage again of circumstances as they occur? I really love rolling with things. I um, I think that's one of the most exciting... I mean, I'm only quite young, but one of the most exciting things about life is seeing what's next and what happens. But... I can see myself staying in private practice. I really enjoy being in a law firm. I really enjoy the stability and the teamwork that comes with that. So in 10 years' time, I think I'll still be seeing a law firm and hopefully have a few more sausage dogs around me. I've got one and I'm looking to expand that definitely, so... 
And by sausage dogs, you mean the creatures? Yeah, the Dachshunds. Dachshunds, yeah. 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 Anyone who knows me that knows that's a bit of a little love of mine. So This is a question completely out of left field, but <laughs> work practices have changed enormously because of COVID. Yep. Do work practices allow a an associate in a large commercial law firm to bring her dachshund to work with her? <laughs> that would be quite interesting, not quite. Um, probably thankfully for the people around me. He's not a quiet little boy, put it that way. Lauren, thank you very much for coming in this morning and telling us about your so far brief life in the law because it is so interesting to hear about the challenges you faced and how you've dealt with those challenges and your enormously positive outlook. It's been a pleasure to have you here this morning and to hear about your life. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Show notes from today's episode can be found at greenslist.com.au forward slash podcast. There you'll find links to things we've talked about in this episode, a transcript of the show and some wonderful photos of our guests. If you're enjoying Lives in the Law, please tell your networks, subscribe, rate and review the show. Your host is former lawyer and Greens List clerk, Michael Green. Our show is produced and edited by me, Catherine Green, mixed and mastered by Windmill Audio and recorded by Alex McFarlane, who also wrote and performed all the music for the series. We're coming to you from the iconic Owen Dixon Chambers on the corner of William and Lonsdale Streets in our beautiful city of Melbourne. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respect to their elders past and present. There is no doubt that conversations about justice have been taking place on this land for thousands of years and we are privileged to continue that discussion here today. 